Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by Arden O'Connor, my friend and founder and CEO of O'Connor Professional Group. Her parents are joining us today, also Arden and Peter. They have navigated the behavioral health system with their youngest son, Chris, in ways that no parent should ever have to navigate. They are college graduates, graduate school graduates, educated, stay-at-home mom, committed parents, delightful people. And despite all of their education, despite all of their commitment and love, genuine, genuine love, Chris cycled through 15 different rehabilitation programs and was prescribed over 25 medications during the course of 30 different clinical professionals. After spending countless of hours doing their own research, hiring lawyers, investing more than half a million dollars in Chris's care, Arden Sr. and Peter were confused, exhausted, and frustrated. Like many families, they couldn't believe the level of turmoil, tragedy that Chris's addiction caused their otherwise really harmonious, talented, and blessed family. Welcome, Arden. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to ask your, the first question today to Peter. You and I have had many conversations about your, your family history with respect to substance use. Were you surprised that one of your children struggled with a disorder? I was, but I shouldn't have been. Um, by the time we realized Chris had a problem, I was 20 years in sobriety and recovery myself. It, alcoholism affected my whole family, all my siblings. I come from a large Irish Catholic family, 11 children, and probably half have had struggled with alcohol. I myself went to AA 35 years ago. Uh, and so by the time we realized Chris had a serious problem, I was 20 years into the, into the program. I wasn't surprised. I just wanted to put it off and I didn't want to believe it. And I think that's probably the big thing. You just don't want to believe it. It's, we didn't ignore them when they were young. We talked about it. We had them read books like Under the Influence. We went through the numbers saying, if you're the parent of a, a child, who's uh, what's the probability that child's got the same problem you do? And it was 20, 30, 40%. So if you have three children, there's a high probability that one of them is going to be affected. All that being said, when it was finally put on our doorstep, I didn't want to believe it. I sort of pushed it away. And that probably lengthened the process before we got Chris any significant help. Um, so was I surprised? I, yes, I was, um, but I should have been. Well, my understanding in part of Chris's story is that he did start fairly young. You probably, even if you were going to acknowledge that he might have had an issue, you probably would have thought it would have been later. Arden, I think that, Arden yeah, mom, I, yeah. Did you have a sense when Chris was 12, 13, that he was struggling? Um, I think 
what happened is Chris first was diagnosed with ADD. And so you knew he was a risk taker. Um, you were worried about that. And no, I didn't think that way. Uh, we had moved to Arizona and the, the rules were different than the structure that New England provided. So I can remember an incident where I found some empty liquor bottles underneath a uh, bathroom sink. And I immediately went to his older brother and said, what are you doing? And was very angry. And Matthew said, look to your other son. And I couldn't believe it. I really, really couldn't believe it. He was young when we moved there. Um, you know, you had heard things that kids were drinking Gatorade and, and putting the bottle in their cargo pants and putting liquor in it. And I never, ever thought that Chris would do that. I just didn't know. I, did. I, I was taken by surprise, e again, even knowing the genetic component. <clears throat> even knowing that he was the same kid who had taken an ice cream sandwich and shove it down his pants to avoid being <laughs> seen by you. <laughs> I guess, you know, you, you were naive. It's, you know, you just thought of Chris as this funny bone, the, the guy that would take every risk and who would do silly things and uh, push every boundary to its limits. But it was so out of the thought in our mind process at that age that no, I didn't think that way. Uh, I started to after Matt said that, but I still almost refused to believe that that would be even a thought that early on. I completely understand that. And I will bet every parent out there listening would say at 12, 13. No, yes. I wasn't yes. paying attention to that. That's young. And what we know is that kids who actually do start that young have an increased odds of having a problem later. So mm -hmm. tell me when the two of you, I'm gonna start with Arden and then I'm gonna look at you, Peter. When was the first time you really went, how did we get here? Do you remember? Yes, there's so many of those moments, really so many. Um, the first time that was very early on was uh, when we got called a call from one of the parents in Chris's high school. And Chris, I believe, was in ninth grade then. And um, they called us and we sat down in their house and talked to, they had their sons there also. And one of the uh, mothers said, looked at us and said, your son brought poison into our home. He brought cocaine. I could have fallen off the chair. Um, if you thought that maybe, you know, he was drinking or, or experimenting, that was one thing. But cocaine, not, a, not on your life. And um, so when that happened, I remember looking at Peter and thinking, I can't believe it. I, I can't believe that this would even happen to us. And so um, I remember looking at him and the, the one of the, the uh, parents was reading from passages from a Bible. And I was thinking, um, how did this happen? How did it happen? As you said, we took family vacations uh, together. We, we ate dinner together. In fact, Chris came home one day and said, he was embarrassed in school and I said, why? And he said, uh, because the teacher asked how many of 
the students ate dinner with their parents and he said, I was the only one who raised my hand and I was so embarrassed. And I remember saying, what are you embarrassed for? He said, I said, that's, that's really what a family's about. So we thought we had this all handled. We all were lots of joy, very uh, fun loving kind of family by nature. Um, and we were all close. Uh, so yes, we, I took, I took these moments, but there were so many other moments later along the line that were so, so, so f much more difficult that, uh, I, I, another incident that comes to mind is mm -hmm. being in, um, Chris got, uh, told that he had to go to a rehab, uh, that was the court looked kindly upon when he got into some some difficulties in California and had to go to court and wound up in jail and um so we he was put in that in that place and um we went there and there was a chain link fence and there were chains all around the the lock and there was somebody with a walkie-talkie when we came to visit him and I the two of us looked at each other and said this is do you believe that we're here do you believe that this has really happened? So yes, it happened over and over and over. Um, I could spend the whole broadcast talking about all those times. Okay. Peter, what's your big memory of how did we get here? Well, it's pretty, timing wise, it's pretty much the same two incidents. Uh, I think the one that really got me the most was standing in line outside the Orange County Jail, waiting to see Chris You've been in there two or three different times and you're sitting there or standing there with 30 other people saying, what the hell am I doing here? I mean, this is not something you ever conceived in your life that you'd be visiting a relative, let alone your son, who's incarcerated, talking through a phone, through a plexiglass window saying, where do you go from here? And in a very peculiar sense, what happened, you got so nervous about his life and that he was going to OD on the streets someplace that when he was in jail, at least you knew he wasn't going to die from drugs. So a lot of other problems, but you knew it. To, one thing was not going to kill him. He wasn't going to OD from taking heroin or whatever and pass out on the street. So in a perverse sense, it was the worst time. But at some time, by the time he'd been there two or three times, um, you took some sort of solace in it saying, at least I know where he is. A lot of this time mm -hmm. in the first couple of years, you had know where he was for two or three, four days at a time. He would go underground. He wouldn't return phone calls. And you had no idea whether he was dead or alive. And then all of a sudden, he'd show up someplace in a hospital or someplace, and the process would start all over again. That is really powerful to hear that you can almost sleep better when you know that somebody might be That's incarcerated. Right right? The sleeping gets That's better. Exactly. It's the upside. So our listeners, by and large, are advisors and family members of um, people who have resources. How were the fact that you could pay privately for treatment and lawyers and professionals helpful for Chris? And in what ways do you think it wasn't helpful? It's, um, it was a mixed blessing. And the one sense... I think we kept him alive uh, by being able to get him into different facilities, being able to pay for different facilities. 
I think you extended his life. There's no doubt in my mind he would have died at 20 or 21 rather than when he did. Uh, I think he kept him out of prison. Yes, he went to jail two or three times, but by affording a lawyer, the lawyer got his record expunged and he was able to go back to graduate school. So that's the pluses. Problem you have when you're in business, you think it could just throw money at something and somebody else is gonna fix your problem. And what you find out in the system, at least we found out, is that's not really the case, is we educated ourselves over the 15 years that Chris was going through this, but we would he would go from one facility to the next facility and the person who was guiding us along the line was either a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a lawyer or somebody. Candidly, I think the training in this field has been so lax that 80% of the advice we got was, wasn't worth the paper was printed on. Uh, and I'm not blaming them, I'm blaming us also, because I was reacting pretty much in a panic mode, sort of running around like a chicken with his head cut off, trying to throw money, buy him a car, maybe that works, get him a new apartment, maybe that works. Or maybe, you know, the first rehab he went to was out in Arizona. And literally the, the big complaint was that there was no water in the swimming pool. Now, after having done this for 10 or 15 years, you find, you feel that the cost of the, the rehab program had nothing to do with how good it was. And some of the best ones were just heavily, at least in my opinion, heavily AA based and bare bones type of operations. But the money helped in one sense. I think you prolonged his life and you gave him a shot to try and turn his life around. On the other hand, it sort of gives you this idea if I just put the money there, even though we were involved, maybe we could have been more involved than we were. And maybe withdrawing back before we did might have been better. It's all second guessing because we did what we did at the time. There wasn't an awful lot of help to be had. And obviously it didn't turn out too well. Arden, tell this audience about advice you received along the way that was helpful and advice that you received along the way that you wish you had followed. So um, one of the, the first place that Chris went to was uh, on the West Coast and uh, he went through their program and after it, they had uh, a counselor that was Chris's that spoke with you about transition into the community and and what would happen. All of this was new to us, the transition, the uh, sober home, what does that mean? All of it. Um, Christopher, we at that point brought another person in and asked this education consultant about what to do. And he was very adamant about the ropes program, the outdoor wilderness kind of a program for Chris. And Chris got so angry, he stormed out of the meeting. And we were sitting there, again, this was the first meeting as that type that we've ever been to. And the counselor said, you're shooting yourself in the foot. And he was really angry with Chris. We talked with him when Chris walked out and said, let him calm down. And we sat there and he said, you know, your son basically ultimately needs to live in a community. Um, that's a sober community. It isn't one of these, he will go through a program and go back to, to college, like you're thinking and have a hap live happily ever after. He will probably the best thing for Chris would be to move into a small suburban community, get the support of a sober group 
and maybe go to community college and finish school that way. At the time, of course, you know, Chris then came back in and heard that and he was opposed to it. At the time, because it was the first time we ever thought of that, we were still in that mode of he will get well, we will finish this program, and maybe he has to do some things with some stipulations after he gets out, but he'll finish school and go back to a normal life. In reality, as the years went on, Chris did that in the Berkshires. He wound up in a community that was a sober community and it worked well for him. Um, so I, I wish that was the case. Um, it, it's, I can't label it as advice that we didn't take because Chris was so oppositional, he would never, we could never have convinced him of it, but we didn't explore it enough and really push for it either because in our hearts we're thinking four years live four years or six years in some community that we don't know we thought that they were being extreme which is what we thought a lot with a lot of the suggestions in the beginning it was only later that we said oh maybe that made sense at the same uh time when christopher first when we first first realized that something had to be done i called uh, a consultant, and I didn't never saw him. I just spoke with him on the phone, and his advice at that time was hand him his hat and kick him out the door. And I remember thinking this guy's crazy, <laughs> and I I just said thank you and hung up the phone, and that never changed throughout the years, for better or worse. It it is one of the bits of advice that at times probably would have been a good a good thing to do but as parents and even looking back at it now it's it wasn't in our repertoire it was not something that peter and i could do could could actually tell him to leave and don't come back um we had no control over so many things but the one thing we had control of is that we could keep coming back as parents we could keep accepting him we could keep trying and i always talked about everything about the ifs um, labeling everything. If if we did this, if if he could be outside at some of these rehabs, if he, if he went to a gym, mm. if we had the best doctor, if we had, if the place was had sunshine, it could be. And I don't know, even looking back, if we could have, if we would have changed that, because that's what we were. We are. Our Peter and I are. You have a problem throughout many problems, nothing to do with Chris even is, you fix it. You work on it and you fix it and you move on. You don't wallow in it. You just keep fixing it no matter what it is. And um, I don't know that that would have changed at the time. A, a lot of other things changed, but I don't think that kind of procedure would have changed. <laughs> that makes sense. I do want to say to this audience that I have known many families who have struggled with substance use disorders and many committed parents, but you guys rank supreme. Your notebooks of case management, Arden Sr. are legendary. Peter, your willingness to continue to try and learn and grow and stay sober and model a healthy man um, were phenomenal so i just wanted you guys to know that that my vision of working with it and knowing the two of you was that what you did was show love in a way that was helpful 
Yeah. So, and now I want to ask Arden. I'm not going to call her little Arden because if any of you have seen her live, she's about a million feet tall. But it is Arden. So you were a force with Chris in the family, in the world. What was it like for you to encounter the professionals who were treating Chris? What were your thoughts about them? So I think because of the age difference, because I was seven years older than Chris, I often was more like a third parent than, you know, a peer to him. And so any of the behaviors he did, I was not somebody who was going to cover it up and not tell mom and dad. I was somebody who was going to say, you know, this isn't good and we need to get you help. Um, I think along the way, you know, what I felt like is we were getting advice from so many different sources and none of it was validated information. So I, I vividly remember a treatment center that my brother Chris was in and I went to see the psychologist he was working with and I said to him, you know, I'm his sister. I want to do whatever I can to support his recovery. I love him and I want to be here for him, but I don't want to just co-sign on a plan that he comes up with that isn't helpful. What, what are your recommendations? And the psychologist looked at me and said, you know, you should convince him to see me three or four days a week for the next five years. And, you know, I, the gentleman was billing, I think, at three or $400 an hour. And even as a non-professional, I remember thinking, well, that seems rather self-serving. So you would have people like that. And then you'd have people who said, I remember another incident when Chris was in Los Encinas Hospital in California. And one psychiatrist told my parents, he is uh, definitely got one of the worst cases of bipolar I'd ever seen and put him on a very high dose of lithium. Within a week, a different psychiatrist said I, he would stake his career on the fact that Chris didn't have um, bipolar disorder. And so, you know, for me as a layperson and knowing my parents, none of us are medical professionals. All of us are trying to do what we think is the right thing. And I just remember saying, this is very confusing. This is, you know, there's no clear path here. Um, and how do we even evaluate all of these different voices when we ourselves have our own baggage that we bring to this situation, emotional needs and wants for Chris, um, an agenda for what Chris is going to achieve? So I just remember thinking it was, it was sort of a mess, for lack of a better word, and there was no clear path. And, you know, you're trying to make decisions as family members in a very crisis-driven situation. I always say, you know, if people get a medical diagnosis, even if it's a really dire one, you have medical professionals who aren't necessarily incented one way or the other who can give you, or are allegedly not incented, I suppose there are some, but in general, you can get a first or second opinion and there's clear paths of care. With Chris, it was sort of like throwing spaghetti at a wall and hoping that something stuck. And that doesn't, that especially when there's large amount of money and you're in the middle of an emotional crisis, it, it doesn't feel good as a family member. And that was, frankly, a big motivation to start O'Connor Professional Group. I love that. So how has being, you have said what the impetus was, how was Chris's journey um, really influencing not just the start, but the, the evolution of Opeachee? How did that change things? Well, I always thank Chris because he was so smart and manipulative and his story is, you know, I would say on the more extreme end of addiction stories, although he's by, by far not the worst that we've seen at O'Connor Professional Group in terms of acuity. Um, but he was very savvy. And so I think one benefit for, from my perspective is I'm not a clinical professional. I own that to the families that I work with. But when I hear an incoming 
situation or a potential referral, you know, I have a sense of what my brother would have done, which was usually something quite manipulative. And as sad as that is to witness as a sibling, it prepared me well for, you know, when a spouse comes in and says, my husband went to treatment and, and I say, let me guess, he's saying he's not as bad as everybody there. This, he should never have agreed to this. Nobody has a job. Everyone's, and somebody will say, well, how do you know all that? And I say, because, you know, I've lived this before, not only just as sort of a, a hands-off sibling, but I have taken my brother to detox several times. I've intervened when he was, you know, in a drug dealer's home. Like I've had these very acute situations, ones where I stood here and said, how, how did we get here? Um, which prepares me for the level of manipulation. I think it also prepares me for a level of empathy that we've talked about in previous podcasts. You know, I think in many ways, I can appreciate when a family's very angry and I can appreciate what I went through when my brother stole jewelry from me. But I can also say that I loved Chris partially because who he was under the influence wasn't who he was as a human. And it took me a long time and, and through help from people like you, Diana, to get there. But I could separate the two and that made me capable of coming back to the table each and every relapse and not saying, here's your hat and, and take off, buddy. And it, it helps me when I'm talking to a family member. I, you know, I think of a referral that came in last week where somebody said, I think my son lacks discipline and he needs to just figure this out or he's got to get out. Um, or I think of another referral where somebody said, I don't want to put him in a nice rehab because he doesn't deserve it. He's, he's really, you know, this was a gentleman with psychiatric issues. And he said, you know, I feel like he's been in those. We need to put him in a, a place where he really has to earn his keep. And I remember saying, in a gentle way, you know, it's your money, it's your prerogative, but here's my view. And and that was largely based on my experiences with Chris. It's not supposed to be a punishment. Treatment is supposed to be something that helps someone get better. And that if I hadn't had those experiences, I think, frankly, I probably would have had a more judgmental attitude about people who make bad choice after bad choice. So in one word, what is the characteristic of your family that helped you survive grow, manage the many years of Chris's struggle. What's that word? What is the characteristic of the O'Connor family? So your word would be love, which would not be our word because it's a little mm -mm. too, um, <laughs> it's a little too fluffy. As Squishy. You know. we're, we're, we're Irish Catholic. We don't, we don't, we don't talk about that. Um, <laughs> I, I would say forgiving. I mean, I think the, the, piece that you already mentioned, but the piece that keeps me in awe, and I'm, I'm very much appreciative of my parents coming and talking about this today, because it isn't an easy topic. You know, he died three years ago, and it's still even more raw in some ways now than it was when it first happened, when you're in shock and you're dealing with all the logistics of a funeral and getting, you know, condolences. Um, but my parents have both with Chris and with my brother Matt and I, you know, they just, there's just unconditional support and an immense amount of forgiveness. And I always say that, you know, sometimes people ask me about an intervention. Well, how successful can this be? And can you guarantee, that's my favorite question, can you guarantee this is going to work? We can't guarantee anything when it comes to behavioral health. That is the honest truth. We can't control a loved one's behaviors. We can do things that maximize the chances that they might accept help, but we can't control the outcome. And Part of, I think, accepting a loved one with a diagnosis is also knowing that some of what you're doing is to know that as a family, if the worst happened, which it did in my, our case, and in my case, um, that you tried everything. And, you know, Chris passed away and I still 
take a lot of pride and a lot of solace in the fact that even when we thought something was bad, even the, the last two days before he passed away and we suspected something was awry, all he heard was, we will support you getting help. If, you know, if you had a relapse, we'll bring you back into treatment. And I, I feel like that, so I answered a very quick question with a very long-winded answer, but I would say forgiveness, unconditional forgiveness is the, is the best way to describe our family. And it's two words, not one. All right. I like that. Arden, Peter, do you have a different word? Humor. 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 A ton of humor. That's um, what I would have said. You guys have a resilient sense of humor that is awe-inspiring. <laughs> Thank you. That, that's served us well. And uh, in the worst of times, we've found an opportunity to... to have a, a moment to be able to laugh at something and as arden said it's it's very raw chris's death still and um even there you have a moment i told arden that uh, i took her new dog which reminds us of christopher so much because it's just, he's just wild and uh runs all over the place has limitless energy and doesn't listen to you so, and i took him to chris's grave because i was watching him and he immediately defecated and i said chris is laughing right now right on chris's grave this is so for chris so i, I honestly even in those moments that's what served us well <laughs> exactly thank you peter uh, I would probably say perseverance. We just stayed with it. Yes. There were a lot of treatments. I don't know how many, probably 20 or 30 doctors, or another psychiatrist, a psychologist, I can't. But we just hung in there, even as Arden said, right until the end. Um, we were really, the last two days were terrible because she knew it was relapsing, and we still were willing to give another chance. But part of the problem, going back to what you said, what did all this mean for you? We got to see the real Chris for the past four years, his last four years of his life. The 15 years we chased him around the West Coast weren't the same years as the four years he was back in Boston. He was sober. He was seeing the people out in Great Barrington who he had a close affiliation with. He was going back to school. And I think in my case, I probably underestimated the degree his addiction was. I knew what I did when I got sober. I know how long it took. I watched my other son, Matt, do the same thing. And I couldn't understand why Chris kept relapsing. And now you could tell me better than I know. There's different degrees of addiction. And I think on a scale of one to 10, if I was a three, he was a nine and a half. And yeah. he just had this itch that he had a scratch. And unfortunately, after four and a half years, he scratched it and fentanyl was in the neighborhood. And that was the end of it. But we stuck with him. And you have to understand, this was a wonderful kid. I mean, this is, I learned as much from him as I, from any individual I've ever seen. He never took advantage of people. All the damage he did was to himself. He was just a nice human being. And I think we had this idea that we made it, that after four and a half years, he was gonna graduate. He was gonna be a member of society. And it wasn't just his death, it was the surprise of his death all over again. And I think that's, is still the most difficult to understand of all of this. That makes sense. So we've got unconditional forgiveness, humor, and perseverance. It's quite a recipe and quite a family. Thank you, the O'Connors, and thank you, listeners, for 
coming to the episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. If you like us on your platform, we would appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.